0: please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 5 as we're continuing to go through the book of Hebrews verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Hebrews chapter 5. Let's pray together. Father, we do reflect as it's the last Sunday of 2014. We know it's just the the changing of a date, the changing of a calendar, but it causes us to reflect and think of your faithfulness. Thank you how you have met us Sunday after Sunday. You've continued to bless us with your presence and with your word. And God, we want to grow in you. As we head into a new year, we pray that it would be redeemed, that we would see you more clearly, that we would fall more in love with you. Holy Spirit, we invite you here and ask that you would bless this time, that you would allow us to see Jesus in, in a greater way. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. The title of our message this morning is The Author of Salvation. We're going to be looking at how Jesus is the author of salvation. There's going to be three primary points, and I'll give them to you now, as well as we travel through the text, is the author of salvation is greater than the high priest. We're going to be looking at how Jesus is superior to the high priest of the Old Testament, also how The author of salvation is in the order of Melchizedek. And some of you might be saying, who's that? Well, we're going to find out a little bit this morning. And then finally, that the author of salvation, which is Jesus, is desiring maturity in our lives. He's desiring for us to grow more like himself, more like Christ. I want you to consider what the word author means. What's the dictionary definition of author? It's the maker of anything, the creator, the originator. So what are some things that we author, that we create? For some, it's books. For some people, they they write books, which is a very difficult task to do. For some, it's, it's art. Definitely not me. Stick figures, I find challenging to be able to do. But some of you are artists, and you can create uh, art. For some, it's music, and you're able to create music. Others, it's to design buildings. You're able to come up with with new designs, whether it's commercial or, or residential. But there seems to be a problem in our creation is it's hard to come up with anything really new that's never been done before. I mean, every song kind of sounds like another song, doesn't it? Every book kind of reminds you of some other book you've read. Every sermon starts to sound like some other sermon that you have heard before. Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun. We don't really author things in the same category in the way that God does. Agreed? He authors so many things. He's the creator, and one of the things that he authors is our salvation. He brought it into existence. So let's look a little bit back in chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 14, to get us prepared for chapter 5 since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews. So this is chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This would be a big concept for the original readers of the book of Hebrews. They're Jewish Christians, Jews who had been saved, and their tendency was to want to go back under the law, to go back under the traditions, to start to look to the high priest instead of looking to Jesus Christ. So the author of Hebrews, which we don't know who the human author was, is going to great details to show us why Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Why we don't look to the Old Testament system. We don't look to the high priest of the nation of Israel. We look to Jesus Christ. We learn so much in Hebrews through contrast. How Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the old covenant. And what we find in chapter 5 is that Jesus is greater than the high priest from the Old Testament. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sin. The high priest in the Old Testament, which was one man, was taken from among men, and he was appointed for men. The whole reason that there was a high priest was because men and women are sinners. They needed a priest. They needed an advocate. They needed someone to go to God on their behalf and offer sacrifices for sin. And that's what we find in this verse. It says to offer both gifts and sacrifices. The reason that a priest was appointed was for men. Each high priest foreshadowed the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ. How he would come to offer sacrifice for our sin. In verse 2, it says... He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Every one of the high priests could have compassion on those that he was offering sacrifices for because he too was a sinner. How is Jesus different than that? Jesus is greater than these high priests because he can sympathize with our weakness, being tempted like we are, yet he's without sin. He never compromised. Jesus never had to make sacrifice for his own sin. He simply made sacrifice for our sin. But the high priests in the Old Testament, they had to make sacrifices for their own sin because they were subject to weakness. Every worship leader, every Christian singer, Christian artist, every author, every pastor struggles with sin. They're subject to weakness, but not Jesus Christ. Look in verse 3. Because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifice for sin. So this is our first point to consider. The author of salvation is greater than the high priest because he never had to offer sacrifice for his own sin. I've been thinking about how does the book of Hebrews apply to us and our culture today. Is there a tendency for us to get our eyes off of Jesus Christ And to get it onto a person, to drift away from Jesus? I think absolutely. And could it be that we get mixed up and we start looking to an author? We start looking to a pastor? We start looking to a mentor? We think they've got it all figured out. If I could just spend time with them, then they're going to unlock these things for my life. And we've done the same thing that this church has done in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the only one who's perfect. Jesus is the one you're longing for. He's the one that I'm longing for and looking for. And don't get your eyes off Jesus Christ. Don't drift from him. Don't, don't make too much of a pastor and put him on a, a pedestal and think that he doesn't struggle with sin. I, I struggle with sin. Spend a day with me. You'll know. It's true. Ask my family. They'll, they'll tell you. Everyone does. We we all struggle with sin. We've all committed sin. All the high priests of the the Old Testament committed sin. But Jesus is without sin. He's the author of our salvation. Jesus is the advocate for us before the Father that brings about grace and salvation in our lives. In verse 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. The priest couldn't just be anyone. You didn't take an election for who the, the high priest uh, would be. You couldn't, you know, put in a, a system of politics to become the high priest. It was appointed by God. And as you read the Old Testament, he did it in two ways. The Levites of the tribe of Levi, they were to be over all the physical aspects of the tabernacle and the temple. But it was only the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, that could be high priests. So God appointed them by birth. So only if you were born a Levite were you able to to serve in the temple and the tabernacle. And then only if you were of the family of Aaron could you be a high priest. It was appointed by the Lord. There's a big difference in our lives between being self-appointed and God-ordained. And all the things that God calls us to do, we can... Be self-appointed, or we can allow God to move in our lives. God to set us apart for those purposes. Numbers 16 and 17, if you want to read this more, show the great detail in which God reserved the position of high priest for the descendants of Aaron. This was something that God was very serious about, of who could be the high priest. In verse 5, this points to Jesus. So also Christ didn't glorify himself to become High priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus didn't decide that he was going to be the ultimate high priest, he was appointed by the Father. This is the greatest nomination to come from the Father. The way that he did this is in relationship with his son, quoting Psalms 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The Father was the one who gave Jesus this position. Verse 6, we're going to spend some time here. And he also says in another place, you are my priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is point number two. The author of our salvation is in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to spend a lot of time developing this in chapter 7, but this morning we're going to scratch the surface of this a little bit. And put yourself in the mind of the Jewish people. What I've just told you is the high priest had to be from who? From Aaron. Was Jesus from the line of Aaron? No. So how could he be the high priest? How could he make this claim that he's the ultimate high priest greater than the high priest of the Old Testament if he's not from the line of Aaron? He's from the line of David, which gave him the right to be king and David's descendant that would reign forever, but he's not from Aaron, because he's of a different order, and it's a superior order, and it's this order of Melchizedek. So we're going to discover a little bit more about Melchizedek, and we're going to turn to the Old Testament. First, Psalms 110, Psalms 110, so if you'll turn there with me in your Bible, or click there on your iPad, or your Kindle, Psalms 110, This is where the author of Hebrews quotes from. It's an awesome psalm. Psalms 110. If you're new to the scriptures, the psalms is the middle of your Bible. So if you kind of take it and just go to the middle, you'll get pretty close to Psalms 110. Let's look at verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Confused yet? The Lord said to my Lord, What's that all about? The Father is speaking to the Son. This is a conversation amongst the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father is speaking to the Son. So the Lord, the Father, is saying to my Lord, Jesus, Sit at my right hand. Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Verse 2 The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers. In the day of your power, in the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn, and you will relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Clearly speaking of Jesus Christ, this psalm. In fact, Jesus quoted this of himself in the Gospels. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. This is a messianic psalm pointing to God coming in human flesh. And here's this understanding of this new line of priesthood, the line of Melchizedek. It's a priesthood that's forever. All of the high priests were temporary through their lifespan. Once they died, they were no longer priests, but this order of Melchizedek, it's eternal, a priest forever, and it's in this line of Melchizedek. So now let's go back to Genesis where we're introduced to Melchizedek. So Genesis 14. First book of the Bible, Genesis 14, verse 18. If you find it first, if you could just stand up and read it really loud. Genesis 14, verse 18. One of you is going to take me up on that, I bet you. Then security's going to come and visit you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you guys a story that has nothing to do with my sermon. It was like two years ago, and Kent was doing announcements, Pastor Kent. And right here, a guy stood up in the third row, and he just starts yelling really loud about some bomb that's going to go off in in New York. I mean, he's just screaming and yelling. And I'm sitting right over here, and so in my mind, I'm going, well, I'm the closest to deal with this, but I'm the least qualified due to my stature. But I decided it was my turn, so I walked over to the guy and I just looked at him, and I went like this. And I was thinking in my mind, what if he doesn't come with me? <laughs> he's a really big, strong guy, and he's obviously angry, and he's screaming and yelling, but by God's grace, he just put his head down like he was a little schoolboy in trouble. And then he walked down this aisle, this long aisle with me, and then talked with one of one of the other pastors while we went on uh, with his service. So, My little joke about Bible drill reminded me of that for some reason. So Genesis 14, verse 18, Melchizedek, back on track here. Had to chase that squirrel for a second. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God of Most High. Abraham had went to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. God did this amazing victory against all odds, Abraham has great spoil, and then all of a sudden we see this mystical character almost come out of nowhere named Melchizedek and is the king of Salem. And Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek literally means. King of Salem, Salem is Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, which means peace. So we have the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and he brings out bread and wine. Now, what does bread and wine always represent in the scriptures? communion, the new covenant, the broken body of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's foreshadowing the work of Jesus Christ. And then he was the priest of the Most High God. This is mind-blowing because this is before the law was given. This is before the tabernacle, before the temple, before the nation of Israel has really come into existence. Here's this guy, Melchizedek, who's serving the Lord, the one true Most High God, As a priest, but he's also a king. Notice it says King of Salem. This is very unique in the Old Testament. It's the only one that I know of that is king and priest. When God did establish Israel, he made it very clear that no one could be both king and both priest because Jesus would be the only one in Israel that would fulfill both of those offices. One king, Uzziah, tried to cross that line and take on some of the responsibility of the priests, and God struck him with leprosy. It was Uzziah. And so Melchizedek very clearly foreshadows Jesus Christ in a very profound way, and Jesus comes in this order of Melchizedek to be the ultimate high priest that's superior to the other high priests in the Old Testament. So verse 19 and 20, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abraham has this tremendous spoil, and he gives tithe to Melchizedek. Sometimes you hear people talk about tithing, which is giving 10% unto the Lord, and they say, well, we only find tithing in the law, and we're not under the law anymore. Well, here we find an example of tithing long before the law was ever given. They say we don't find tithing mentioned in the New Testament. And that's true, but what we do find in the New Testament is what? Be a cheerful giver. Be a cheerful giver under the the new covenant. You know, if you've been coming here for any period of time, we don't take an offering during the service. We have offering boxes out in the foyer because we want it to be between you and the Lord. We want you to be a cheerful giver but I want you to understand that the heart of giving, it does precede the law, and we find that with Abraham. So some look at Melchizedek, and they think that possibly Melchizedek could be Christ walking onto the pages of the Old Testament. I don't know that we can say that emphatically. I don't think that we can say that dogmatically. It's a possibility. What we can say dogmatically is Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus Christ in a profound way. What we find in Hebrews is Jesus comes in the order of Melchizedek. I find this stuff to be fascinating and exciting. I give you a a little bit of an assignment, maybe for 2015, is read through the Old Testament and look for Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. Whether he walks onto the pages of the Old Testament, called a Christophany, or it's foreshadowing Jesus Christ, When Christ was risen from the dead, he's walking with two of his disciples, and it says that he went through the Old Testament scriptures, and he said, it speaks of me. That's a message I wish I had. That's a conversation that I I wish I had. He comes in the volume of the book. The Old Testament points to the New Testament. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So now that we've looked at this in Genesis, let's go back to Hebrews, and we'll continue on into verse 7. Who in those days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Now we begin to drill in on what Jesus did for us as our, our high priest. And what we're taken to is the Garden of Gethsemane, the days of his flesh, his incarnation, his days here on earth, and he offered up prayers and supplication. Supplication is that, that plea and that de- desperation. And as he's crying with vehement cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death. This word vehement, it means strong and intense. In the Greek, it's, it's translated in other parts of the New Testament as being boisterous. When we have these storms on the Sea of Galilee, it was translated boisterous or vehement or strong or intense. As Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was crying out with intensity. I want us to try to go there for just a moment and examine what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus took his disciples to the upper room. It was his last meal with them. They celebrated Passover. This is something these men had celebrated every year of their life. And Jesus says at this Passover meal, guys, I'm the fulfillment of the Passover. I'm giving you the new covenant. And they understood covenant. God's contract with men. And God's saying, I'm bringing you into a new contract through my broken body and and my shed blood. John 14 through 17 records that for us. Jesus pours out his heart to his disciples And after having Passover, Scripture tells us that they sang together. They sang a song together, a hymn together of of glorifying the Lord. Then they get up, and they go out of the old city of Jerusalem to this Garden of Gethsemane. And if you can picture how Jerusalem sits, it's up on a little bit of a hill, and there's a valley. It's called the Valley of Gehenna here, and it goes down underneath And then it goes up to the Mount of Olives. And at the very bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's olive trees. And they have olive trees that go back to the date of of Jesus Christ. And this is significant because olives would be pressed in order to make olive oil. It's still a great product of the nation of Israel. So here's Jesus in this grove of olive trees, and he's being pressed... And what is on his heart? He says to his disciples, I want you to stay up and pray with me. And specifically, Peter, James, and John. Jesus had a way of bringing these three close throughout the Gospels. They got the the inside track with with Jesus Christ. We wonder why. Why were Peter, James, and John always taken into this inner circle with Christ? It could have been because they were the biggest troublemakers. Jesus was like, I got to keep my eyes on these three. He says, Peter, James, and John, I want you to come with me and I want you to pray. It's in the middle of the night. He knows that he's going to be arrested and crucified. He cries out to the Father and he says, My God, my God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Goes back to the disciples and finds them asleep. Finds Peter, James, and John asleep. Now, before we beat up on them too bad, The Gospels tell us the reason that they were sleeping is because they were mourning. They had a broken heart. Jesus had just told them that he was going to depart from them. And they were consumed with grief and they began to sleep. And Jesus wakes them up again and says, come on guys, would you pray with me? He goes back and he's crying out. That's what verse 7 is talking about. Vehement cries, intense cries. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is asking for an out on the cross. He's saying if there's any other way for there to be salvation, if there's any other way for your will to be accomplished, please, please, every ounce of desperation. Luke's account tells us it's so intense that he began to sweat blood. We know this is a medical condition that can happen when you're under great stress. And Jesus is experiencing that at that moment. He prayed it three times there in the Gospels. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is an important thing for us to stop and realize and understand that Christ went through. And the first understanding is the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to get my will in harmony with the Father's. That's what Jesus does here. Not my will, but your will be done. Christ and His humanity had a moment of obedience He had to do something that he did not desire to do. And you're saying, well, why didn't Christ want to go to the cross? There was the physical aspects of the cross, but I think it was the spiritual aspects. When Jesus died, he cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that the cross would mean separation momentarily between him and the Father. That the Father would pour out His wrath upon Jesus because Jesus had became sin for us. That's the punishment for sin, to be separated from the Father. It's so meaningful when Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He was forsaken so that we could be provided that promise. What Jesus is expressing is, Father, please, I don't want to be separated from you. Think about how hard that was on Christ, but also how hard it was on the Father. Your, your kids coming to you and saying, please, dad, please don't put me through this. Please don't have me be separated from you. I want to be with you. I don't want to go through, through this pain. And the other understanding that we get from this is to see that there is a joy that's set before us. When the Father asks us to do something that involves suffering, there's joy on the other side. Later on in Hebrews, it'll tell us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. We can trust the Lord as we go through that. As I look at verse 7, it's very deep and it causes me to want to shout out a hallelujah to Jesus, the author of our salvation, the captain of our salvation, that he would do this for us and he would surrender to us in this way and he would surrender to the will of the Father. Let's look in verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ and his humanity, not his deity, and his life here on earth, he didn't rely upon his deity. He had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. So if Jesus learned obedience through suffering, how much more so are we going to learn obedience through suffering? There's times that the Father's going to ask us to obey when it's hard. Amen? We don't want to do it. And we have to get to that place of not my will, but your will be done. And we learn obedience. I like what David Guzik said about this passage. Jesus didn't pass from disobedience to obedience. He learned obedience by actually obeying. Jesus didn't learn how to obey. He learned what is involved in obedience. It wasn't that Jesus was ever disobedient. It was in his humanity that he learned obedience by suffering. In verse 9, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's never that Jesus was not God. It's never that he was not perfected. It's that his suffering made Christ perfectly suited and prepared to be the author of salvation. In order for Jesus to pin our salvation... To speak our salvation into existence, to offer salvation, he had to suffer. He had to go to the cross for us. And because he did, he's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This isn't a works based salvation, it's the understanding that if we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, it's going to lead to obedience, it's going to lead to a life of submission to Christ. In verse 10, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, both king and priest, of whom we have much to say and are hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Don't we have so much to say about Jesus Christ? The author of Hebrews does. He's like, i got so much to say about, about Jesus. Melchizedek foreshadowing Jesus Christ. But it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. It wasn't necessarily that it was difficult to understand. It was that the Hebrews' church had a spiritual deafness about them. To me, this is a lot like a conversation that we have with our children. Is God wants to get to the issues of Christ and the issues of this Melchizedek priesthood, but he first has to deal with the root issue in this church, and it's that they're not really listening. You may have some information that you need to communicate to your kids, but they're not listening. So in order to get to that place where that conversation can happen, there's usually some conversation that says, hey, you know what? You're checked out right now. Would you please tune in? Would you please listen? Because I want to share my heart with you. And sometimes your kids go bink and they get to that place. But the church of Hebrews is not there. They're dull of hearing. What causes us to be dull of hearing spiritually? I think it's a lack of interest. We really perk our hearing in things that we're interested in. For example, uh, today's the last day of the NFL season, and the playoffs are happening. And What teams do you think are stacked up? And all of a sudden, hmm, I'm listening to that. Going back to you know, illustration uh, with kids, you go, hey, guys, let's load up for ice cream. I can say that so quiet, and the minivan is just filled up, and we're on the road to, to ice cream. It's like, all right, guys, time to clean up. <laughs> you know? Nobody's listening. There's a, there's a lack of interest there. And over time, do we get to this place where there's a, a lack of interest with the things of God, the, the, the things of this world, the things of this life? that they've got our attention, they've got our our worship, but the things of God don't. Hearing, spiritual hearing, is a big part of the book of Hebrews. Remember chapter 2, verse 1, give more earnest heed to the things you've heard, lest you drift away. Chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, this generation in the wilderness didn't enter the promised land because they heard the gospel, the good news, but it wasn't mixed with faith. That's a hearing condition. There wasn't faith that was mixed with hearing, what causes or what's the result of being dull of hearing? It's a lack of maturity. It's a, a lack of growth. So, so, this is the third thing that we consider uh, this morning. The author of our salvation is desiring maturity in our lives. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, the understanding is is the church should have grown to the point where that they could share with others. It's not that God's calling everyone to be a missionary. Or calling everyone to be a pastor. He may be calling you to that, but he's not calling everyone to that. But every Christian is to be a teacher. It's part of the tenets of the Christian faith is that God wants us sharing what we're learning. One of the ways to stunt our spiritual growth, to be dead, to be dull of hearing, is to stop sharing truth. Something happens to us spiritually when the things that we're learning we share with others. You get into God's Word for yourself, God's Word touches you, and you share it with your spouse. You share it with the person you're dating. You share it with your kids, and you go, man, God's really touched this in my life. It's meaningful to me. It's relevant to me. And that's what God's always desiring, is for us to be a dispenser of truth. When you learn for the purpose of sharing, you listen differently, Here at the church, uh, we are using some new software as a church staff. It's called Ministry Platform, and it's a tool that's helping us to to do our jobs better. So we went through a a week of training, and eventually there's some aspects of this that hopefully you'll be able to use as well. But during this week of training, I listened differently because I knew that I was going to have to use it and share it. And you'll listen differently to God's Word whatever the format that you study it in, if you're determined, I want to use this. Like if you came this morning going, I'm going to get into God's word because I want to use it. I'm going to study it this morning. I'm going to engage. I'm going to be there. I need to use this in my life. When I go to do my devotions, if I have that kind of attitude, I want to use this. I'm going to apply this. I'm reading the word of God with my boots on. I'm reading it with my shoes on. I'm ready to put this into my life. And then I want to share it with someone else it's going to affect the way that I listen. But if I don't have any intention to use it, if I don't have any intention to share it, then I, I'm going to listen differently. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, Paul spoke to Timothy and he says, I've delivered this to you in the presence of many witnesses. It wasn't one on one, even with Timothy, it was with a bunch of people. Now I want you to share it with faithful men who are going to share it with others. You want to see your Christian life come to life? Share with others. The simple things, the profound things, the things that God shows you. Pass it on and share it. Continuing in verse 12, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. They should have been teachers, but instead, they're needing the basics once again. It wasn't a compliment to them. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Milk is great. In fact, Peter wrote to the church, and he said to desire the pure milk of the word. There's a place in our lives for the milk of the word. If you're new in Christ and you've gotten saved uh, recently, man, enjoy that milk. It's it's wonderful. It has a place in our lives, but the purpose of the milk is to get us to the meat. And again, we see this in the life of a child. It's wonderful for them at the beginning of their lives to, to have milk, but there comes a point where it's like, you know what, it's time for some meat. It's time for your little palate to experience all these other flavors. And that's the same thing inside of the Word of God. As we get to a place in our Christian life where God's saying, you know what, you've been having the milk long enough and now it's time for you to grow up and to mature and to have the meat. I mean, what if we had a 16-year-old here in our midst and was going up to the cafe and saying, you know, all I ever have is milk. Just please, could you please serve me up some milk? And we're going, well... Have you ever had our breakfast burritos? Nope, never had the breakfast burritos. Yeah, have you ever tried the biscuits and gravy? Nope, I, I just have milk. They'd be missing out. And this church was missing out. And it started off with the dole of, of hearing. It was time for them to graduate. So this is how we can determine if we're at a place of milk or we're at a place of meat, how we need to grow, verse 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he's a babe. So please don't take this in a heart of condemnation, okay? Where you're at is where you're at. Don't allow the enemy to beat you up. But this is something for us just to accurately get a view of our, our spiritual life. And so one of the ways to determine if you're a babe in Christ and only enjoying milk is if you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You don't know how to get into God's word for yourself, read it, and make decisions for your life. Another way to see that you're growing in Christ is that you can get into God's Word, read it for yourself, and begin to see what God has for your life. It's a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Church, this is our heart at RMC. We're not really concerned with trying to entertain you. It's not our job. Sure, we, we want church to be enjoyable. We want it to be engaging but that's not what we're working hard to do is to provide entertainment for you. I am fully convinced you can get a lot better entertainment than what I can provide for you. Can I get an amen? That is not my job. My job is to get you into the Word of God and try to help teach you how you can study on your own. That's one of the primary reasons that we've adopted an expositional style of teaching, that we go verse by verse. You've noticed we go through books of the Bible so that hopefully you can adopt that in your own life and read the scriptures for yourself I'm convinced the enemy wants to keep you away from the Word of God because he knows the Word of God's going to bring growth in your life you can study the Word you can study at Genesis to Revelation the Spirit of God lives inside of you if you're a believer and the Spirit will teach you you pray before you read you begin to read and all of a sudden you're developing this skill You're like, okay, I've got this decision to make in my life. Well, what does the Word of God say? I remember reading this in Genesis. I remember reading this in Hebrews. Hey, I I know the Proverbs got a whole lot to say about who I should be dating and who I should not be dating. Oh my goodness, she's the woman of folly. I need to run for my life. You get the idea? It comes through, now you're developing this skill of how to be able to use God's Word I can't do it for you, a mentor can't do it for you, you can do it for yourself, you can jump in, and it's a skill we never want to lose. Christian, this is something that we can kind of, in a negative way, grow out of. Maybe when we were really growing in our relationship with Christ, we were engaged in the word, we were learning how to use it, but maybe pride set in, or complacency, or boredom set in, and all of a sudden, we're not in the word. And our skill of using it begins to get a little bit rusty. In verse 14, But solid food belongs to those who are full of age. That is, those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So we know if we're digesting meat spiritually that there's a maturity in our lives. And this is how we know if we're digesting meat is our senses are exercised to be able to discern good and evil. So someone who hasn't grown spiritually, they just can't discern between good and evil. They're having a difficult time being able to detect what's right and what's wrong. This is morally and doctrinally. But as you grow in Christ, because you're learning who Jesus is, you're learning who the Word is, you're able to discern. You're able to use your spiritual senses... To pick out and go, you know, this is good. This is bad. This is doctrinally good, and this is doctrinally bad. All right, how do I, I know what sound doctrine is? What is doctrine, period? It's what we believe about God. It's the most important thing about us. Well, how do I know if it's sound doctrine? Well, does it line up with the life of Jesus? Is it practiced in the book of Acts? Is it taught in the epistles? Well, no, it, it, it doesn't. So this isn't sound doctrine. Isn't this what maturity looks like in the life of a child as a child grows into adulthood? You don't have to hold their hand anymore. You don't have to sit there and explain to him this is right, this is wrong. They've developed it for themselves and it's the same with spiritual maturity. I say this in jest a little bit. But man, if you've chosen to be a vegetarian in your physical diet, that's great. There's a lot of good reasons to be a vegetarian. I'll just let you know I haven't joined you in that But I honestly, sincerely don't look down upon you for that. But in your Christian life, you need to eat meat. You need to be a carnivore. And if you've been in this place where all you've been having is milk, you've kind of been spoon fed, you know? It's always somebody else giving you a little bit here, someone else giving you a little bit there. It's got to be this way. It's to say, you know what, God? I want to grow. I'm going to make this my priority going into 2015. I want to grow. You know, if you've walked with the Lord for some time and, and to step back and go, you know, am I, am I growing? Or have I kind of just gotten stagnant? Have I gotten to a place where, for whatever reason, there's a lack of interest? So, what have we seen this morning? The author of salvation is greater than the high priest of the Old Testament, is in the order of Melchizedek, is desiring maturity in our lives. So here's some application questions for us to ask ourselves. Am I looking to others in ways I should be looking to Christ? Sometimes we can just give the easy answer and go, yes. Yes, I am. I'm looking to Christ the way I should be. But has there been a tendency in your life to begin to look to others instead of looking to Christ? Allow the author of your salvation to be the one that you look to. Am I spiritually hard of hearing? Huh? What did you say? Am I spiritually hard of hearing? Have I become dull of hearing? Is there a lack of interest? And then, am I maturing in Christ? We've seen two ways to just accurately look at that. It can be a hard thing to get a feel for if we're maturing. But we're going to be maturing in Christ if we're growing in our skill of using the word and if we're growing and being able to discern good and evil. So if you can look back over this last year and go, "Man, I've got so far to go, but I have been able to start to use the Word of God in my life. I have started to be able to go to God's Word to, to see what I should do in, in different areas. Oh yeah, I do have a, a better understanding on what is good and evil. This is my heart, and I think it's your heart as well, is it's a scary thing to stop growing. And in our Christian walk with the Lord, there's really no such thing as cruise control. We're either growing closer to Him or we're starting to drift. And so it's something for us to look at in our hearts and our lives to say, God, I want to press into You. I want to be growing in You. I, wanna, I want the meat. God, give me the meat. I don't, want ju- I, just, I don't want just the milk. Don't lose sight of the main point of chapter 5. It's Jesus, the author of our salvation. So would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you're the author of our salvation. And we do cry out hallelujah that you went to the garden of the Gethsemane. You took the cup of suffering upon the cross. You died and and rose again. And we love you. We want to see you as the great high priest, experience you in that way. You're our advocate. We get to come to you, to your throne room. May we never put anybody in your place, God. Lord, we humble ourselves and We know that it's so easy to get complacent, to stop growing, and we do pray for spiritual growth in our lives. Would you spur us on to get into your word, to digest it? Would you give us the ability to take on meat and be able to share it with others? As we go our way today, may we be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.